This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight, we are joined by another friend of mine from the podcast town community, Runa Krishnan, host of Lead That Thing and the best-selling author and a business strategy consultant. Aruna, welcome to the show. Thanks, Thomas. I'm so happy to be here. So as we do with all of our uh, guests for their first time, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you love movies. I've always loved good storytelling. So whether it's a good book or a movie, so movies are a form of that storytelling, but with much more of the visuals. So I love getting engrossed in a movie and just following along with the story and, you know, guessing like what is going to come next. So it's like turning the pages of a book, but much more, you know, much more with the visuals. Excellent. So you selected this movie, but I think in uh, talking to you ahead of time, uh, this is not your favorite movie. So what is your favorite movie and why? Yeah, so it's actually not a an English movie. It's a, it's a movie, it's an Indian movie. It's a Tamil movie specifically. Um, I'll tell you the name. It's called Alay Payude. So basically the movie is, a, it follows a love story, much like The Notebook. But uh, what is interesting about that love story is starts with two people, like the guy pursuing the girl, and how that evolves into marriage, how sort of uh, things start to get petty when they get married, but then the girl gets into an accident and how the guy ends up kind of coming back to the girl and how that relationship and that original love um, comes out and how they realize they've just been so petty just because they almost lost each other, right? So, and, and the, the what makes this my favorite movie is that it brings a lot of good things together. So the actor in the movie, the director of the movie, the music director, as you know, Indian movies are all like based on like heavy musical scores and um, and and some of the singers in the movie. So it just kind of brings a lot of good things together. And it's a feel good movie, of course. Absolutely. For those in the audience that may not be aware, Hollywood is probably not the biggest uh, movie studio town in the or in the world. Uh, essentially, the Bollywood is producing um, some of the highest paid actors in the world and are pumping out movies left and right. Uh, I am not nearly familiar enough with uh, Indian cinema as much as I probably should be. But for all of the conversation over international markets and uh, where American film and TV is going, uh, breaking into the Chinese market, you never hear it about the Indian market because they've defined themselves. So mm-hmm. it'd be a great place to potentially explore with the show uh, as we kind of expand. And um, just a uh, refresher, we're going to get to this here in a second, but today is International Podcast Day, so I know this is not coming out till next week. So we just want to recognize that, but before we get to that, our final question is, what makes a good movie for you? So for me, a good movie, being a writer myself, and I know this has been sort of my thing over the last maybe two, three years, when I, I almost watch from a writer perspective. 
So a good movie needs to have good writing and editing. Because I've seen a lot of movies where they put in unnecessary stuff just to fill the space. And it's just the editing between scenes don't make sense. So those are just really hard for me to watch. So there's good writing, good editing, and then good storytelling. So story development through it. So just keep me engaged. I like to be engaged. And then at the end, it has to leave you with one of these feelings, either with a feeling of being satisfied or with a feeling of where you have questions, where you, you want to talk about the movie after, or with a feeling of closure. So those are some of the elements. Absolutely. I, I Just to jump on your point with the editing, it's not something that you focus on when you first start watching movies, but the more that you get into it as kind of an amateur expert like uh, Dana and I are, uh, you definitely can see the craft and the artistry and how it's paced can just be done in the editing room and uh, how much the editing uh, adds to or detracts from the movie. Very much so. Agree. So tonight we're discussing episode number 36, The Notebook. And our guest selected this particular movie. Uh, we'll get into uh, her relationship to that in a second. But before we do, i just like to give everybody kind of the background, because I often forget this uh, as we kind of go along. So before we jump into everything, uh, let me just give you the background and the plot summary. In 1940 South Carolina, mill worker Noah Calhoun, played by Ryan Gosling, and rich girl Allie, played by Rachel McAdams, are desperately in love, but her parents don't approve. When Noah goes off to serve in World War II, it seems to mark the end of their love affair. In the interim, Allie becomes involved with another man, played by James Marsden. But when Noah returns to their small town years later, on the cusp of Allie's marriage, it soon becomes clear that their romance is anything but over. Uh, this was given a SAG Award nomination for supporting actor for James Garner, and it pretty much swept the Teen Choice Awards for 2005. So it's got that going for it. Uh, all right, so just to bring in our guest uh, first, you selected this movie, Aruna, and I guess what is your relationship to this movie? Why why this one? So this is really interesting. So it takes me back to when uh, Match.com first came out, okay? So I think that was sometime around the time this movie came out. Now, I, I, I'm, I've been married for 20-some years, so that was not for me. But I had a single male friend who told me that literally all the girls where it was favorite movie, they had the notebook. So this is going back maybe about 15 years. And I was like, the notebook. I had no idea who was in it, didn't bother researching it. And, uh, but, but I just remember, I remember my friend telling me this. And then I think it was for the first time last year that, and, and maybe with all the streaming that it, it showed up either on Netflix or um, Hulu or something. And I said, oh, The Notebook. So it kind of brought back a memory for me. And by that time, I had I had watched like a couple of Ryan Gosling movies. And I thought, oh, this guy's a good actor. I mean, he's got, he's talented. And uh I hadn't watched La La Land yet, but then I, I had watched enough to know that he's a really good actor. So then I went in and I watched it. And I remember the first time I watched it, I think I cried at least three different times in the movie. So it, it, it really was very touching. 
Uh, and what's really interesting, because of the theme of this movie, it reminded me a lot about a lot of the Indian movies because the class thing features in so many Indian movies. It's so much more prevalent in that industry. So I was like, oh, this is almost like watching an Indian movie, but this is really cool. Um, so it, it stuck out in my head because I do like Ryan Gosling. I think he's really talented. And then to see him dance and do things like that, it was a realization that, oh, my goodness, this guy's multi-talented. If you really want a good Ryan Gosling movie, I will suggest it'll be a movie we eventually review on here. But um, it's more of a cult classic that got nominated for some Oscars. The movie Drive. He, that's probably his best movie by far, and it's, uh, I don't know if it is right now, but uh, it has been on Netflix uh, on and off uh, several different times, so yeah. for anybody yeah. out there who hasn't seen that one, that he is amazing in that movie. Right, uh, I think I recently watched that, Thomas, and, and you're right, absolutely. So, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie, if any? There was a time that your mother started reading Nicholas Sparks' books, and being somebody that was trying to understand his wife more and get involved, I read, uh, I believe, four of his novels, including this one. Um, and so I read the novel, and when the movie came out, I took your mother to it. So I, too, because of Mom, um, read a couple of books. This is only one of two Sparks books that I, I read in high school. She gave me this one after uh, she gave me A Walk to Remember because that was a little bit more youth-appropriate. It didn't have such, um, let's say, graphic material in it or adult content for uh, 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 people listening. Uh, so, But I hadn't seen the movie until probably late stages of high school, probably two or three years after it came out. And it was, again, that same thing where... Every teenage girl that I went to high school with was fawning over this stupid movie. And, oh, this is the epitome of love. And I want all of my relationships to be like this, this yearning and calling of my first love. Yeah, okay. And while I make fun of all of this, you will see that I do have a certain reverence and respect for the genre and all of this other stuff. But I've never been much of uh, what I like to call a gal cry movie. And this would definitely fit that bill. So uh, as far as a jumping off point, the book is so much better than the movie. But the movie's not bad. And we're going to get into that. Well, and and I will point out that um, almost every movie that... um, uh, is derived from a Sparks novel. He has a uh, final artistic control. You can't buy his the rights to his books without him having final say in how it's done. And uh, that's one of the things he has negotiated as by, far as being a best-selling author that he controls. And so, you know, either he has been involved in the screenplay or has gotten an opportunity to... Uh, actually approve the screenplay before shooting. All right, so Dad, what do you think this movie is about? It is about love and having the connection with one person that transcends all parts of life. He was willing to give up him his own, well, basically the last part of his life to be with her. 
because, as he said, that's my sweetheart. Very similar to what Dana just said, it's an evolving love story with all the opposing forces, and it's a man's unwavering commitment to his wife, and it shows two souls that are connected till the end. I'm going to go a little bit further. I'm the only one of the three of us that's not married. But you know that thing that you do every time, especially early on in your coupledom, where somebody, oh, how did you meet? Or like, how did you guys get together? That's what this story is about, but from a certain perspective. But I'm going to I'm gonna drop it out even further. Because the real big part of this movie is, is it's looking back. And the reason it's looking back is because the, especially the second hour of this movie is all about how Noah wasn't going to let her get away a second time. And the entire purpose of reminding her, of reading her the notebook, is because she's getting away a second time. He's getting away, or she's getting away from him due to circumstances that are beyond his control. That her losing her memory, her memory of him, of understanding their relationship, what they mean to each other, is the backdrop of this entire movie. He doesn't want to let her get away, and so thus he does everything within his power to try and keep her close to him. It's really the love story, but in a much deeper or more meaningful way because it's paired against the backdrop of crippling loss. There is so much loss and pain associated with this movie. I find it, um, it's going to be one of my uh, remaining questions, but that they just gloss over uh, Noah's best friend dying, and they gloss over his dad dying, where they don't do that in the book. They they go into much more fervent detail, and they it, for the expediency of time in creating a Hollywood movie, obviously you have to skip over certain parts. But the amount of loss that he goes through, and the fact that he loses her once, but has this relationship. You know, I, I don't know about either of you, but there are relationships that I've had, friends, romances, otherwise, that are never really too far apart from you. They're always within mine. And for him, this call of yearning, of going backward to the one place that ever really made him full. And I think that's the reason why women gravitate to this movie is is they want that level of satisfaction in a relationship. Even though, I I think, frankly, everyone is envious of this relationship. It it becomes a certain idealism of what the the true romance should be. I think that that was pretty beautiful. I mean, I didn't really think about the aspect of him losing her a second time, but I think I think that's a great point. And um, even talking about the pain he's experiencing, yeah, great point. Well, just the scene um, where her memory comes back and then goes out again, and she doesn't recognize him, and they have to sedate her. Um, the pain on James Garner's face um, and the, the the emotion that he has. Um, says that. It's very astute of you that you picked up on that. So let's move into some of the categories. 
Uh, Aruna, who did you have as the, your best performer? Yes, so obviously it would be very easy to say Ryan Gosling because I'm a woman. <laughs> but uh, You have uh, eyes. <laughs> right, I do have eyes. Uh, but I am... And so I watched it for the third time, and I think the third time I could watch it, I could be much more objective. I would give it to, oh, yeah, I would give it to Rachel McAdams. And it's because when I watched her, it was that the personality that she was portraying, that bubbly personality in every scene, even just the way she laughs, it's, it seems like it, that takes some effort, but it comes across really genuine. But you know that she's acting, but it comes across so genuine. And the range of emotions that she has to show in this movie, I thought she did an amazing job. I had Gosling for just the fact that he had a presence in the film that was overpowering. So I also had him down, but it's for a certain level of desperation that he conveys. Most of this movie, he's supposed to be charming and whatever or else, which I think he could roll out of bed and probably be. But that's not why he gets my best performer vote, if you will. It's the sheer depths of pain and despair when he goes to that bottom place that I can relate to because, um, you know, I, I don't know how much I've revealed on the podcast. I've had some struggles with mental health myself and particularly depression that can be a very low hole to dig yourself into. And I can not only do I see myself in that, but I've seen myself in that state due to a relationship before. And so because of that, I think it's, it takes on a whole different level to me. That's not only understandable, but uh, I think was authentic. And then the desperation of, where I, I, you've seen so many really bad um, rom-com versions of the guy runs after the girl <laughs> and meets her at the airport and stops right. her from getting on the plane. And, you know, that's not desperation. That's like cheese. This was much more of I'm going to do the few things that I have within my power. Now, part of it was the script, but, you know, the way he gets off of the bus just to run after her. And then immediately is completely withdrawn when he sees her with someone else. The way he finishes the house and is almost a man on a mission just because there's the faintest possibility that if if I do this thing, if I accomplish it, or uh, I'm not going to sell the house because maybe one day she'll walk into my life again. And this is the thing that uh, I'm going to fulfill in order to make sure that I'm ready when she's ready again. Those are the types of things that just raise his his level of performance. And I really do think if I were to pick a winner of this movie, it's probably him because it completely launched his career. Like Rachel McAdams had two big movies this year, and this was probably the second of them. But uh, Wedding Crashers uh, simultaneously put her on the map as far as um, kind of a comedic leading lady type. And she had just done Mean Girls as well. But she had, you know, several of these movies right in a row where you could really uh, tell her potential for star power. Now, 
um, in the the subsequent decade or so uh, since this, it, it hasn't been quite as apparent. But uh, Gosling's been you know upfront and close in a lot of different things, and I think he's improved his uh, full acting chops, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. in the decade that's followed. So, um, all right, uh, Aruna, who do you have as your best secondary performance? So I went with Joan Allen. So the the mom of uh, Rachel McAdams, because I felt she really portrayed that uh, strict and sort of almost snobbish mom. And uh, and you vilify her, obviously, in the beginning of the movie. And then how it changes to showing that she actually has a vulnerable side and she has a story that she's basically been hiding all the stuff Um from even from herself or denying the stuff that um, this past that she left behind. But I thought the that role that she played as that really strict mother and then changing to like, yeah, I have a story too. Uh, I thought she did a great job. She was very cliche for basically everything but that one scene. But as far as my opinion goes, but that one scene really makes her entire performance because it gives a whole new depth to the movie from that perspective of things. So I, I totally understand where you're coming from on that. Dad, who do you have as your best secondary performance? I have a tie. Um, I have it between James Garner and Sam Shepard. I, I just love Sam Shepard. <clears throat> I mean, the guy was just phenomenal. I mean, the fact that he won... Tony's uh, won a Pulitzer, um, was nominated for an Academy Award for the right stuff, playing Chuck Yeager. I mean, the guy just had so much talent. And just in the little pieces, you know, a, a, the, the sign of a great actor is not how well he plays a role that is a large part of the film, but how well he plays the role that's a minor part of the film and makes it his own. And so to that extent, I really liked Sam Shepard in this movie. The second part is, is a, and why I said it's a tie, is James Garner just came across as being, I mean, I grew up watching James Garner from everything from television to movies. Um, you know, I, the guy was always, in my opinion, a phenomenal actor. He played uh, every part well. He just came across as being somebody that was so genuine in his love that I just really thought his performance was great. And I I believe this was his last movie um, because he passed not too long afterwards. And uh, I think this really is a tribute to his career. For James Garner, the thing that... So I, you've heard people talk about like Gary Cooper in the same way that Quiet Confidence. I'm gonna say he has a slightly different characteristic that is unique to him. It is a comfortable confidence. You are immediately comfortable with who he is. He puts you at ease, but he's so confident that it's a char- charisma that um, pervades everything else that's going on around him, and. Between the two, it it just sets a certain tone that um, is unmistakable. It's interesting you commented about Gary Cooper because Gary Cooper became James Garner's kind of like mentor in Hollywood in the uh, 1950s. 
Well, then that was just a happy accident. Uh, I had Rachel McAdams as my best secondary performance. Honestly, this movie doesn't work if the two of them and their relationship doesn't work with each other. And there's a genuine love. I, I think, I don't think she performed as well as Gosling. But in the scenes where she has to act against him, I don't think that he blows her off the screen enough that it, it just doesn't work or that the relationship isn't authentic. And so it's one of those where um, I I give it to her, not necessarily out of default, but a certain respect of the, the relationship working on screen um, and not one of them having to carry it the whole movie, because otherwise this wouldn't probably have been on the show. It's an interesting point about this, is that Ryan Gosling and um, uh, Rachel McAdams uh, developed a mutual loathing for each other at the very start of the filming. Um, they, the director really had to work to get them to develop some level of chemistry to do their scenes. Apparently it worked real well because then they lived together for like four years. <laughs> right. Well, you're bringing all the extra facts tonight, Dad. You're just dropping knowledge constantly. Uh, all right, most charismatic award. I'm going to go first. The way that he is in this movie and every scene that he's in, that genuine smile, I gave it to James Marsden. I, I felt he needed to be mentioned. Ultimately, I have him as a big part of one of my remaining questions for the end of the show, but uh, he's just got such a movie star caliber quality to him and he's been in so many good projects um over the last few years and i i just i don't know i naturally naturally gravitate toward him every time he's in something i'm watching so aruna who do you have as your most charismatic so this time i'm gonna go with ryan gosling definitely agree with everything you guys said in the best performance so just presence and uh agreed to with like just whether whether it was a, a difficult scene or whether it was showing like happiness or you know mischievousness it, it just came across like um it was very appealing whatever he did and even even being able to go to the depth of like uh feeling this pain or fighting for for the girl i thought he did a great job dad who do you have as your most charismatic uh, Rachel McAdams. I have a belief that whether it's a novel or a movie, that if it's there's a love story in it, if the character does not become real enough to me that I fall in love with her as well, then the movie falls flat to me. <clears throat> and to, to the extent that that is... Um, I the reason I feel she was charismatic was because I tended to feel love towards her by the end of the film. Fair enough. So I, I do want to mention just briefly that we've now had three different categories of uh, actors, actresses, performances, etc. And only one time did any of us overlap as far as our nominations. That really speaks to the level of ensemble in this cast. I, I will say that it is a fairly good 
uh, ensemble of people. And frankly, you and I, particularly Dad, have gravitated towards those types of movies. All right, so best scene. Anyone want to take their first crack at nominating one? My best scene kind of talks about, you know, the storytelling and the direction. So it's early in the movie, and I think uh, where Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams are coming out of the movie, it's their first date, and it's that traffic light dance scene. So why I love that, because when I watched it this time, there was just this innocence in the scene portrayed by both of them. It just starts with conversation, you know, lying on the on the ground. And she's like, what, appalled? Like, what, what are you doing? Like, don't do that. But then the way, the way it's directed and how the story is even just built up in that scene. And if you watch their dance, like with every changing, I guess, with every cut to cut back to them, you see them, they start out kind of further apart. Then she puts her shoulder, her head on his shoulder and then they're dancing cheek to cheek. And, and then it cuts back to the older, older people. So I was just like, I just loved how that uh, I, I really felt the love there and I was like really roped in. So for me, that was I'm going to call that the best scene. Yeah, that's a great interplay between the two of them and kind of giving that really early entry point because for where it takes place in the context of the movie, uh, it's right after he pretty much forces uh, her into dating him and kind of gets this trick over on her after she's basically played rope-a-dope uh, as far as it, um, trying to get score a date, I guess. So the, the interplay is... Um, Something that really works, particularly in that scene. Dad, do you have one to nominate? Yes, the scene where uh, the police are out looking for uh, the two, and they go to her parents' home, and uh, Noah is sitting out in the in the uh, front room, and he can hear the parents and uh, uh, Allie yelling at each other, and basically saying that he's a worthless piece of crap and um <laughs> you know she i love him and I, I i'd never been in that situation although i felt close to being in that situation more than a few times so i i i just felt for him at that moment and just really i thought that was a very revealing scene all right, uh, I guess it's my turn to nominate. I, I nicknamed it Papa Calhoun Sells His House. It's really the one big scene that Sam Shepard gets. I mean, there there's a few here and there of the um, situation between the uh, McAdams and Gosling and uh, how that's all going to go about. But I think the fondness that his father realizes by... Uh, especially after he comes back from war, after he's accomplished uh, what he set out to do um, in in fighting for his country, and um, now he wants to realize his dream that his father completely sets aside his own self in order to help him realize his dream. And that was just such a, a touching mm -hmm. moment that he pushes past all of the objections because in the end, it's more important for him to see his dream or his son's um, dream actualized than anything else. All right, Aruna, I think you're up for the next one. Um, a scene that your dad brought up earlier. So when the older Ali remembers 
and they have like this little dance and then pretty much the next sentence she regresses um and just the things that kind of ensue after that how she's basically screaming and she says i don't remember you who are you and why are you here and how um like all the hospital staff kind of come in to get a hold of ali but then you see james garner in the corner of the room he's just kind of like almost like he's so stone cold right he's just observing and and then you see this tear streaming down his eyes oh my goodness like i think that was just great acting and that's why that's one of my favorite scenes i mean it's a sad scene but it's one of my favorite scenes to just capture like how much he loves this woman right dad what did you have next as your nominee for best scene i have the death scene which is um you know he uh, she remembers him he wakes her up they're both at the end of their lives they you know they end up dying in each other's arms, holding hands, and then in the morning they are found together. Yeah, it's it's a touching way for the movie to end. It kind of is much more ambiguous in the book, so for this to put such a good cap on it for where the movie went, I think, was a, a nice finishing touch. Uh, the next scene that I'm going to nominate is one I've already mentioned, but I, I think it is one of the better scenes of the movie, and I... I Nickname this one, Mama Shows Her Her Lost Love. And it's the scene where Joan Allen takes uh, Rachel McAdams out to the quarry and shows her the guy that um, she originally ran away with to, I guess, be with. And all of the regret and the pain and uh, the rest of it just comes through so effectively in that scene and really changes the tenor of, of the mood of the film. And where she's been the negative force, particularly, you get a little bit of a sense of that from um, McAdams's dad uh, or Allie's dad uh, in that. But he's kind of more of a periphery. It's her mom that's always been so firm on saying no to this. And then you get this moment of just pure vulnerability of realizing the what could have been in her life. And all of the things start coming back to her. Till the moment that it ends up where you get that last finishing line of, I hope you make the right choice. And to a certain degree, all of us wish we, especially if you can relate to this story or if you've ever been in the situation where you uh, either had a parent that didn't uh, agree with your choice of partner or uh, you were the one that they did not agree on. Uh, you want this conversation with your parents where they give you a little bit more of the vulnerability instead of just this firm resoluteness of no. Do you, either of you have any more nominees? Just the getting caught in the rain scene. It's by far the most famous oh, of the film. That was so. my most indelible moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's mine as well, but so... And uh, I also gave it a, a secondary nickname on that one because it was a nominee I had as well. It's still not over because it's the line that he finishes yeah. up with, you know, it was not over. It's still not over. And it's it's part of this piece of where she comes back. And it, it's an interesting part because if you you know the backdrop of the book, this is kind of where the book 
I, I wouldn't say begins, but it's kind of its jumping off point as or as opposed to its um, climax in a in a certain sense or its peak. So it, it certainly is no. There's a reason that the movie or all of the posters and um, the box cover and everything else have this scene um, picturalized because it's the crystallization of that particular moment and her basically choosing him after he comes back for her. All right, so out of all of the nominees, Runa, what was your best scene? So I would have to go with the getting caught in the rain. I think that was my favorite scene. I I still, well, I guess I'll agree. Um, I'm trying to decide what's the best scene versus what is my favorite scene. And so, yes, that that would I would agree that's it. Uh, I'm going to go with the one that I nominated a minute ago, and it's also my pick for favorite scene. And it, it's the, the one where Joan <laughs> Allen shows that level of vulnerability and um, showing her all of the regret, because I really do feel that that is kind of a pivot point on where this movie goes, because it's all kind of in a, a completely different arc after that. I know that the the pivotal scene is the getting caught in the rain, but I think this is the one where there's a certain reality that um, she feels allowed to choose Ryan Gosling's character as opposed to before that where it was um, kind of a forbidden type of love. Mm -hmm. Aruna, you had down Allie Remembers and Then Forgets as your favorite scene. Dad, did you have a particular favorite scene? I guess I'll go back to the scene I had originally mentioned for best scene, and that's the um, just the scene where it takes place in the house, and the parents and and uh, Allie are fighting, and Noah realizes that this is not to be because um, there's just too many hurdles to overcome, and so he's going to be magnanimous and end it. Yeah, I, I kind of nicknamed that one It's Over, but not really, because even in the moment, um, there there's so much anger and um, resentment toward the other, even though they kind of recognize it in the moment as to what it was. They aren't in a place where they can choose each other, and uh, you definitely see that come back around. It wouldn't be as meaningful, or there wouldn't be as much of a story if they didn't have to separate for a while and then come back. Uh, obviously, that doesn't make for as good a movie, but there, there's so much involved in that particular scene that um, you feel for both of them simultaneously. Uh, so, most indelible moment. I think we're in a three-way tie on this one. It's the getting caught in the rain. It's still not over. No. Any particular reason that this moment is the one that's uh, seared into your memory? So for for me, it's, uh, again, it's always about like that building. So the way they lead up to that moment is they're in the marsh and uh, he's just kind of showing her around. It still feels like friendship, like, okay, it's nice to see you. And then it starts raining and and then it leads up to the final scene where it's like, you know, it's coming. But then it when it comes, it's like it's so powerful. I'm going to steal a bit from another of my favorite romantic movies in When Harry Met Sally. Men and women can't be platonic friends as single people. 
And she is not yet married at that point. So you know exactly, he knows exactly what he's doing by taking her out there, by inviting her back in the morning, and all of the rest of that. Just in the same way, she knows exactly what she's getting into by going to visit him. It's one of those things where they want to be around each other, and it's like magnets that you're just holding slightly apart from each other, but you can still feel the magnetism, and it just wants to go together. And finally, you have that moment where you just let it go, and it all of a sudden comes together. That's what that moment is. You spoke for me too soon, like, because my most indelible moment is not that, but it's the death scene at the end. Um, this came out in, what, 2004, I believe, or 2005? 2000, and I read the book probably 2003 or 2004. And the one thing I remember more than any other aspect of the movie was the death scene. And it's having gone through, um, experienced my grandparents' deaths, uh, my parents' deaths, and just the power of it and having done, you know, being a lawyer and you've done estates and such through the years, and just knowing how when you get to a certain age, how quickly the spouse will pass after a spouse dies if they have a long-term relationship. I mean, like we're talking these couples that have been together 50, 60 years. It's not surprising that the other spouse is gone within six months. And it's because of this. It's like um, you lose a part of yourself. And because of that, and having, you know, now getting to my age and starting to look at it and realize all this, it's just, I think ultimately, it's what you want. You want to have a partner that when you're facing the end, you know, it, it becomes so much embedded in you that you, you, you don't know how you're going to go on without them. And so to me, that's what made this the most indelible moment. If I may just slightly add to that, I I mentioned it before, but I'll kind of repeat myself a little, that there is an idealism in this relationship. More than anything, as I've kind of aged, and you know, I'm 30 now, and most people would say that's not very old. To me, it seems that, but it's a certain matter of perspective. I'll just say that one of the things that I guess I've grown an appreciation for is how much different your life takes meaning and shape when you have someone to share it with than when it's just you. And in that particular moment, after everything that they've gone through and this whole elongated story, and they go into it a lot deeper in the book because they give you a lot of the details of their uh, married years, their kids, all of the other things that are part of this relationship. Obviously, that doesn't work for a movie as much, and you want to create that thing that teenage girls are going to swoon over. But still, that after all of this relationship, that in the end, it meant something because the other person was there to share it with you. That's beautiful. This seems like a really good stopping point to cut to one of our sponsors. We will be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. 
It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Welcome back, and you just caught us as we're about to discuss our nominees for Best Line. So I'm going to jump into this one um, and uh, uh, kind of give you one of mine. I am nothing special, but in one respect I have succeeded as gloriously as anyone who's ever lived. I've loved another with all my heart and soul, and to me this has always been enough. At a certain point in life, the, the switch in me flipped where you reprioritize. When you're young, you want to be rich. You might want to be famous. Um, You want certain things out of your life that are glitzy or glamorous or glorious. And yet, by the time I got into my late 20s and there was a particular someone, the real part of life that you just want is to be somebody to someone. And in this particular regard, you don't have to be special, but if you've accomplished this one thing, you've led a good life, and so this one just spoke to me in that direction. Aruna, what do you have down as a nominee? This was a little bit of a conversation. Like it was, It's actually two lines, but they go together. So this is the older Ali and Noah and uh, I guess my, my favorite line is what Noah says, but I'll, I'll proceed it with what Ali says. So she's basically looking out of the window and she's saying, I've never seen something so beautiful. So she's referring to like the creek and the trees. It's just a nice little scene outside. And then the older Noah is looking at Ali and he says, neither have I, just admiring her beauty and just kind of reiterating his love for her. Dad, what do you have down? That's my sweetheart in there. Wherever she is, that's where my home is. It was uh, said to the kids, the kids were trying to get him to leave the nursing home and come home to them, and he just wasn't going to do that because he had made a commitment to be with her in better or worse, in sickness or in health, and he was going to stay with her. And, you know, the number of days, I'm sure, hours that he put in to read her the notebook just so he could steal four or five minutes of her memory to have her back was what motivated him in any day and that was what his life was and that's what he was going to work for that was all that mattered because he wasn't going to lose her again completely yes uh the next one i had so it's the letter that noah writes i think it was his last letter and that happened to be the one that she picks out but then there's kind of a voiceover during the course of the movie And so it's Gosling's voice over, or read over, 
uh, her reading. The best love is the kind that awakens the soul and makes us reach for more, that plants a fire in our hearts and brings peace to our minds. And that's what you've given me. That's what I'd hope to give to you forever. I love you. I'll be seeing you. Which obviously comes back at the end of the movie when um, he basically says, I'll be seeing you as a, a good night, and then they pass away together. And it, it's kind of a fitting end to the movie. But it's the thing that reminds her of what it was when they had that particular relationship and how it wasn't over even in that period that he had tried to keep it together and i don't know if there's a certain poetry to it that is meaningful at least to me just thinking about it i get uh, i get choked even right now i'm sorry but i do i guess it's not just a gal cry movie because i i did (laughs) during this too I, i will admit i did cry well, I, I've had, you know, I, I, you participated in my men's Bible study, and all the guys would tell me that when they got to be about 55, everything choked them up. And I, I, I've realized that. When I get hit about 55, it's like everything chokes me up anymore because I get so sentimental about things and start empathizing with certain situations. This is one where I would completely empathize you know you start talking about the hereafter and seeing each other in heaven and it just you know <clears throat> excuse me you can probably hear it in my voice right now so yeah, you got a bit of a frog going there aruna yeah, what's well, your other big one so i am going to agree with your dad because uh this is similar so this is james garner saying this is my home now. Your mother is my home. And uh, it's that situation where he says he's not going to go back with the kids. And uh, I also noted that, yeah, it's his love for his wife and his dedication to the relationship to the very end. I'll nominate two other ones that I, I felt were important. I'll The lesser of the two, I'll go first. But it's early on in the movie, and it's when he's trying to convince her to basically go out with him to give him a chance. So, Noah, I could be fun if you want. I could be pensive, smart, superstitious, brave. And I um, I could be light on my feet. I could be whatever you want. You just tell me what you want, and I'm going to be that for you. I've been that guy so many times where you think that it's within your power that if you just try hard enough, that someday they'll notice. And... The unfortunate part of it is that it doesn't matter how much you try, it's if it either works or it doesn't. And it's never going to be part of anything that you do just through a matter of willpower. You can't make someone love you. And the other one that I had, and I think this is probably one of the more meaningful uh, ones. Noah, it, so it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. We're going to have to work at this every day. But I want to do that because I want you. I want all of you forever, every day. I am going. To, I performed one wedding last year, um, and I'm going to be performing another one probably sometime next year when you know we can actually have assembly of people without uh, the severe risk of death. But this is a common narrative or theme in most of the messages I give to younger couples because. It's really nice to have this idealism of what love is 
when it's um, having fun, it's being flirtatious, it's enjoying each other. But when there are so many other dark spots, it's the part that people don't realize that's going to be part of the relationship long term more than anything else. That it's not going to be easy. And you have to go in with that mindset or you shouldn't do it at all. That's so true. I mean, that really, it talks about marriage in general. And I think you said it perfectly. Every day is working at that marriage because there there will be compromises and there will be things that you may not agree on, but it's kind of uh, navigating that together and uh, knowing that it is not going to be easy. There's a certain synchronicity between the two that you get, and I say this as the single person out of this conversation, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a new difficulty and new challenge every day that's constantly going to come up through age or uh, other environmental circumstances, children, etc. And it can be both challenging to have to do it with another person, but rewarding at the same time. It's interesting you have all this knowledge as the single person because this is what I learned through my first, my years in marriage. Like It's a very dynamic relationship, right? Just as you pointed out, first is you as a couple, then you have kids, then you have teens. Like It's constantly changing and it constantly requires so many different things and for you guys to navigate it. And sometimes those challenges come in between the two of you, but it's like, you know, really trying to come back together and, and uh, work through those things. This feeling of being in love that people experience, okay, that's not a basis for marriage because you will fall in and out of love with a person over a span of days, okay? Marriage is a commitment that no matter how bad things get, no matter, you know, your your spouse develops some sort of weird uh, growth on their uh, shoulder and has to have ointment put on it, you're going to be there. That's, that's what it is. And somewhere along the line, we've lost sight in this society today that marriage is some sort of, we have to be in love with the person every day. There are a lot of days that I know for a fact I am not very lovable. And I would understand perfectly that your mother would not necessarily love me on that particular day. But it is a commitment. And the commitment is is that you stay with them because ultimately the better days outweigh the bad days and you have to and you're there because you've made a commitment to love unconditionally and put up with some things that you just can't stand. Because they're doing the same. Here, here. <laughs> All right. So which out of these would you nominate as your best line? So after all that discussion, I think I'm going to have to go with, uh, so it's not going to be easy. Well, and I, I go with, that's my sweetheart in there. Simply because that sums up, no matter what's happened, the fact that she can't remember things. And that, you know, every day is a struggle for him. He's made the commitment that he is going to stay with her and glean whatever he can out of the relationship. I'll cut back to my original one. 
uh, I am nothing special, but in one respect, I have succeeded as gloriously as anyone who's ever lived. Um, I, I just feel that that's too important a line to be in an honorable mention. And then honorable mention, I'll go back to the poetic um, piece that's kind of uh, synonymous with how this movie is as a dialogue. Uh, the best love is the kind that awakens the soul. Let's move into grading. Are you ready, Aruna, for our Stanley rubric? <laughs> yes, I am. All right. So you coined the term, Dana. He's he's taking yes. it. All right, legacies first up. Dad, what do you have down? Uh, this is a, bo- or a, a book, movie, that's lasted for at least a generation, if not two. So I had this as a 7.5, simply because you mention this movie to somebody yet today, and they'll know exactly which movie you're talking about. Aruna, what do you think? So I think I was much more generous because I feel like this is timeless. You know, it came out in 2004, but then it still has impact on people and people can still watch it. So I gave it a 9. So I gave it a 6.5. So I'm clearly the lowest. And I I think I'm more than anybody else going to have to justify my opinion. Um, I gave this one as low as I did on Legacy, particularly because... I think this is one that fades into the background of a lot of romantic films. It's not on a lot of people's high lists. Um, other than the generation of teenage girls who grew up with it, I, I don't see this as like a cult classic or a following. I do see that enough people know what this movie is, and if you just said to the layperson, oh, we're going to go watch The Notebook, that they at least have a general idea of what you're talking about or who's in the movie. So it does have some legacy value, but it's not one that I think a ton of people, unless they're from that particular generation or revisiting. Mom is uh, a huge Nicholas Sparks fan, and I think she's maybe watched the movie twice. So it's not even one where like cert- or women of a certain age are necessarily gravitating back toward. This one, to me, uh, takes on that inverse relationship. It was bigger in the moment or in that kind of five-year period afterwards, so roughly about 2005 to 2010, than it is right now. And I think it's kind of faded a little bit in the public consciousness, even though it's still there. So that's why I I graded it down to a 6.5. And I'll justify my grade, because I'm talking to men and mentioning the podcast, and they'll say, oh, what are you doing? And I'll say The Notebook, and they'll go, oh, yeah, I like that film. Or they'll say... Yeah, my wife really loves that film. And then, you know, that's that's them saying, yeah, I like the film too, but I'm not going to admit that. Because so, I'm a crusty old fart? Yeah. So, you know, and I mean, yes, your mother only maybe has watched the film twice, but getting your mother to sit down for five minutes to do anything um, is difficult. And, you know, this... This is one of her favorites of Nicholas Sparks, and for the through the years, after she read uh, Message in a Bottle, and we watched the film, she's been enthralled with him, and it's been a little bit of a uh, a game that we've done. I go to the or his website nicholassparks.com periodically and find out when his next novel is going to be released, and I immediately run to Barnes and Noble, buy it. 
um, put a little love note in it and lay it on her pillow. So the average score on that then goes down to a 7.67. Aruna, what do you have for impact significance? So I have it at 9. And I think the reason I have it at 9 is that element of the dementia, I don't think I've really seen that in many movies, so it kind of stuck out at me. And when the way the movie played out, you didn't really know that this is what was happening until much later in the movie. You think he's telling her a story, and only towards the end you get clued in that it's his story. So it's something that kind of sticks in my mind, and I feel like uh, people will remember. So I, I would say those are a few more points toward novelty. Um, then maybe impact or significance. Uh, The way we structure the category, and this is a good reminder for everyone, so don't feel bad that uh, I may be explaining this a little. But it's one of those where, like, what is the public fervor? So I did give this, uh, I'm going to even grade it up slightly from where I had it, but it was a 7.5 for me. Um, Because... You you think about it, how we started off the podcast and what our relationship to this movie is. It's because there were a lot of people talking about it. It was part of the pop culture lexicon. Mm-hmm. And this at least had a noticeable um, bend to it. It also made uh, what I would say is one of our better, I don't want to say a teen heartthrob or anything like that, because that, that's not doing him a service. But it, it made ryan gosling's career and to a certain extent james marsden and i've loved both of their work uh particularly since about 2010 but this is a movie that at least put them on there so there are there are points to be had in that particular regard that i think make this at least impactful in Mm -hmm. movies as a whole or at least in the immediate future what do you think dad i had 7.5 and again the same situation which uh, I think, you know, this was at least the second Nicholas Sparks film to be made into a movie. I remember watching Message in a Bottle, um, Kevin Costner in the film, and, um, you know, but Nicholas Sparks wasn't well known. And I, it, it got to be the point where I think after this movie, a lot of his movies were, you know, such and such based on a Nicholas Sparks novel, which it it became, I wouldn't say it rises to the level that Stephen King does as his name becomes part of the title of the film, but it almost got to that point at this time that people automatically gravitated towards these films because they were based on a Nicholas Sparks novel. And so that's where I came up with my impact and significance on this. So averaged out, that becomes an eight. Uh, let's move on to novelty. Uh, Dad, what do you have down for novelty? I had 6.5. Okay. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a true rom-com, but again, and I think uh, Aruna mentioned this, um, this is a story about losing your loved one even though they're not dead. Um, you know, and I've got, uh, I have a friend, uh, Tom knows who this is, who's going through a very similar situation with his wife. 
and watching the the love and compassion that he has, knowing that there's going to be a point in time where he's going to lose her. And, you know, you just don't see this in other films. It's something that was not dealt with. Um, you just didn't see dementia or Alzheimer's dealt with uh, in films. So that's where I went above the, the standard on this. I would tend to agree, but uh, before I give mine, Runa, you, you were kind of on the same level, so why don't you jump in? Yeah, I gave it uh, an eight, and uh, for the same reasons your dad gave, uh, dad mentioned with the dementia and dealing with that, and the storytelling from maybe what I had mentioned probably um, in the previous category, just how it how it's told is where you don't really see it coming. But uh, I thought it was different. I have not seen something that way, so I gave it a little more generous score of eight. I'm going to agree with your 6.5, Dad. I originally, I had it down for much less than that. I think there have been, in the intervening years, a little bit more to do with this. And I won't give it full credit as a, a novelty because the book existed before this. So it was there, but for the understanding we have or how much dementia is talked about, uh, Alzheimer's, in the pop cultural sphere i think this has a lot to do with it because of the amount of people that have at least know about or understand kind of the not necessarily the twist but the hook of this movie so that's going to grade it out to a seven even on novelty um now classicness is probably our most difficult category um to kind of grasp we've never really fully defined it we've been closer and we've evolved this category as we've moved along i'm gonna give this one a five and it's it's kind of a partly because i don't know what what to do there isn't anything that was necessarily ahead of its time per se other than maybe the dementia portion of this there wasn't anything that graded out poorly um i didn't think that uh, because this is somewhat, um, for the most part, it's kind of a period piece uh, for probably about 70, 75% of the film. So uh, there isn't anything that I think aged poorly. So it's kind of middle of the road. And thus, I, I'm just going to kind of split the difference and go five for now. But that is kind of a soft number that both of you could talk me one way or the other if you have a different thought. Sure. I gave it a six. And so I'm just thinking about it from how how do you define what's classic? So even if you think about music, so I guess that's easier to think about classic music. It's sort of music that lives on. You can listen to it over like ABBA. So I've watched this movie three times and I felt like the third time I watched it and that was in prep for the show, I didn't really have the emotions that I had in the beginning, you know, like the very first time I watched it. So I'm coming to more of a conclusion that classicness is based in large part on if it emotionally touches you yet, you know, that's an element of class or classicness that I, I think is necessary 
you know, I mean, you can watch A Wonderful Life. That's why it's classic, because I've watched that film every or almost every Christmas for 40 years, and it's still the last scene, you know, uh, chokes me up. It always has. That's classicness. It's that it triggers that emotion. And this film, I haven't seen it in, like I said, it's probably been 15 years, and it still triggers that emotional uh, thing. So I'm, I went with a 6.5. It, it's not like it's like, oh my, this is just, this is like a part of me. My scale kind of is, is if it's a, impactful, it's above a 5. If it's something significant and really impacts me, then it's more than a 7.5, and I grade it accordingly. So that's where I came up with this. I'm glad you added that. It's something I've never considered as far as how a film hits you. Whether So, Arroyo, you had suggested doing a different movie all, or as well that I think is something good to talk about in this particular regard for how he, he mentioned it. And it may not be emotional impact, but just how the movie still sits with you. And it's The Sixth Sense. The Sixth Sense is known and... Major spoilers, so if you have not seen the movie, pause for the next 30. I don't care. People are still (laughs) sensitive about this. If you have not seen it, it's a 22-year-old film, but go and watch it and turn this podcast off for the next minute and a half to two minutes. The biggest twist ending, where it's up there is like a top ten twist Mm -hmm. ending, and does it still impact you in the same way that it did when you first saw it? I didn't have that benefit because so many people had spoiled that movie for me ahead of time. I knew oh. what the ending was. Much in the same way that um, I think I would have a better appreciation for what a lot of people regard as the best James Bond movie had I not accidentally spoiled it for myself in Skyfall. It's one of those where it really can ruin the movie if you don't have that same impact. However, one of my favorite movies has a huge twist in it, The Dark Knight. And every time it happens, it still hits me in the exact same places. And so I am glad you brought that in. It's another piece to really evolve the category, give it more ambiance, and and help us kind of move that one forward. Well, how about The Usual Suspects? I mean, that's another one. I knew what the ending was. I knew the ending before I ever saw the film because it took me several years to get around to seeing the film. And I don't think it had nearly the impact on me that um, it would have if I hadn't known it. So to that extent, once you know the ending, the classicness kind of dissipates a bit. Well, you and I just watched Seven, and that's another one where, like, I knew the ending ahead of time, and so it kind of ruins the end, but, you know. The first time I watched Seven, I did not know the ending of it, so I must say that it was much more impactful. All right, so this is the last one, um, and this is probably by far the most subjective. Uh, Rewatchability. Aruna, you selected this movie. I will give you the honor of going first in this category. I gave it a seven. But I'm going to okay. qualify qualify the seven. I think if you watch this, 
you can't wash it too often, like uh, without much time between the watches. So I think I would probably watch it every three years or something, and then it would have the, that rewatchability. But I don't think I could even watch it once a year. So and you seven, watched it three times for this particular show. Oh, no, no. So I watched it the, for the third time I watched it for the show, and I think I may have watched oh. it a few months ago. Um, yeah, I watched it a few months ago. Okay. Yeah. I thought you watched it three times in a row. So. Oh, God, no. <gasps> All right. Uh, Dad, what do you have? Um, I had, uh, again, I've talked about this rewatchability the um, that you need sometimes space to really appreciate a film again. Mm-hmm. And so when uh, I can watch a film every year, then that's about a benchmark of about a five. If it takes longer than that, it falls below that five. So I had it at a four. I could watch this every two years. And, and you know, because it, and I think the older I get, the more, likely it is that uh, I could watch it more frequently because it connects with me through the aging period of my life. This is one where I I would agree. There's a certain period of time you probably need to let pass before you should revisit it because it'll be a different experience because of the amount of time and where you're at in your life, where it may be a new type of experience, how you watch this movie. But it's not the same impact if you're watching it once a year, twice a year, whatever else. And I don't think this is necessarily on the top of everybody's favorites list. It's it's a one that people enjoy, and I did enjoy. But honestly, I don't have to revisit it unless there's a reason to revisit it. And so I gave it a four. I forget, Dad. What did you say for yours? What did I say? A f- what did I say a four also? I think that's what I said, because five is that I could watch it every year. This needs longer than that. So, you know, for example, and I, I, you know, I know that I tend to come across as somewhat of a, whether it's an actual or a pseudo intellectual, you know, one of my favorite films is Dodgeball, because it's just so campy and, and funny and stupid. That's a film I could watch every week if I wanted to, because I can always watch it for 15, 20 minutes and laugh. So that's going to have high rewatchability to me. Um, you know, but this film, you almost have to kind of be in the right mood. It has to be the right time frame and the right distance from the last time you saw it. All right. So bringing in an audience score of 85 uh, for an 8.5. And just to revisit the categories, we had a... Uh, 7.67 for Legacy. We had an 8 for Impact Significance, a 7 for Novelty, a 5.83 for Classicness, a 5 for Rewatchability after we averaged that out. Sorry, I forgot to provide that a second ago. And an 8.5 for Rewatchability for a final total of 42 total points, placing it uh, just below big and just ahead of rocky on our list that's not too shabby all right let's move right into remaining questions with what time we have left uh does anybody else have any remaining questions 
All right, so uh, this is going to be kind of open discussion. Oh, Dad, what did you have? Well, no, I, you know, the way the film ends, you know, what is the reaction of the kids? Um, the fact that you find, you know, you're saddened by your parents' deaths, you know, they happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, you're going, oh, my God, my parents got to, to be with each other as they died. I mean, it's got to be a moment of just absolute elation and the tragedy of death of your parents. Because so, I, I, I've said this, having lost both parents, when my, my mom passed well before my dad, when my dad died, it's not just the death of my father, it was the death of my childhood. Because at that point, my childhood was gone, I am now an adult, and I am the oldest i am the one that is responsible now i can't go back and relate to my parents anymore and so you have that that feeling and so i just was that's the thought that crossed my mind when the when the nurse walk or kind of like finds them both dead runs out of the room to get help you know ultimately breaking the news to the kids and you're going you know, how do you deal with that? I will ask a simple question. Since you've lost both of your parents, and it was about 10 years apart, roughly. Yes. Would it have been easier to lose them both at one time and have it done, as opposed to losing them both separately and having different grieving periods? Boy, I, I can't answer that. Because it's it's not something that I've even thought about. And, you know, from a from a healing point of view, it would probably have been easier to lose them both at the same time because you'd all have to go through one grieving process. But would that grieving process be exponentially worse because you've gone from having both parents to no parents suddenly? And, and interestingly, my, my dad passed. And five days before my dad had passed... His best friend from childhood uh, and his wife, um, they both joined the United States Army in 1957. They went in together. They got separated. Um, He ended up marrying a German girl and bringing her back. They had been married for like 48 years or something like that. They passed away, one from cancer and the other from... Uh, or no, it was both different types of cancers passed two hours apart five days before my dad passed. You know, and I, I knew the, the their kids uh, not real well, but I knew them. And now, uh, you know, it's like, how do you deal? I thought about that. How do you deal with both parents dying on at the same time almost? And I, I, I can't really answer the question because it's one of these situations where you you don't have the ability to really relate. You have you have to find something, some experience in your life that triggers the emotional response to something that you can only think of. And I I, I just can't do it. I I just would have a difficult time. And it it probably makes it worse in my case because one was a sudden death and the other was a lingering agonizing death. Um, which only makes things, 
you know, it, it were, they were completely different and separate, and both had their impact. I mean, it was dealing with it all at once versus dealing with it incrementally over a period of eight to nine months. I don't know your personal situation, Maruna, so forgive my ignorance, but do you have really anything to add on that? Like, I would feel like, obviously, death is difficult, and just to answer the original question, I think losing them both at the same time would be really difficult. Um, My husband recently lost his mom, and even just dealing with with that, and she kind of died very suddenly, you know, we're going through that grieving period, but, you know, I can't imagine, as your dad said, I think it would be that much worse to have, to lose both your parents, because uh, you're not expecting that, and you're not really ever ready for it, I don't think, I mean, it's it's something you know that's inevitable, but... Yeah, losing two people that you love and that you've shared so much with for your whole life, I would think that's much more difficult. The one part I'll add, and just to something you said there, was they have literally been there since the moment you came out. And to not have that stability, that presence, you never expect until it happens that that's ever not going to be there. It's been such a stabilizing force. And so I've unfortunately had that thought of playing that ahead in my mind of when dad when you would go or when mom would go and there's just sudden something where it's like you get to a certain point in the future and you just can't mentally picture it far enough in order to be able to know what it's like it's so foreign of a concept that i i really don't know what it's going to be on the other side of that so uh next uh, go ahead no i just was going to comment uh, if you remember the scene from the ten commandments where I've never moses moses comes down from mount ararat um in you know charlton heston mount sinai and, or excuse me mount sinai and and when he comes down and he presents the ten commandments he uh his hair starts to gray right there it's because he's now reached wisdom and knowledge, and so that's a very you know poignant scene in the movie. I felt like that coming back from my dad's funeral. It was like all of a sudden I realized I am now the patriarch. All right, so the other question that I – well, I have two more yet, but um, and my second of the three – and it's it's kind of a weird moment that just kind of stuck out like a sore thumb to me. When they introduce the kids, they introduce them as his, not hers. And they make a point of saying that. And I just felt it was kind of odd. I know that they're trying not to, like, so maybe that's my ignorance or unfamiliarity with Alzheimer's, that you don't want to present a situation where they're supposed to have a relationship with somebody and spring that on them. So then they feel off-put, but that it just seemed odd to me. Now, that's exactly it, and that's exactly the point that was being made, which is if they would have introduced your kids, then she gets riled up and and can't because she doesn't remember them. And so she gets very upset because they're, you know, who are you? Who are you? Why are you talking to me like this? You're not – 
And so you just can't. That's how I interpreted that as well. I don't know. It was just something that it was so noticeable because they made such a um, choice to make it that way that it just stuck out to me. And so I guess it took me out of it for a second. And maybe that was the point. So I'll, I'll guess I'll credit it on that. Final question I have. How have we not find found a better way to collectively deal with dementia or Alzheimer's? We've been dealing... I, I know the mental health and our level of importance to it isn't even completely recognized societally. Not to the extent it probably needs to be. Or the extent that I'd like it to be as somebody who deals with um, his own mental health challenges. But for this being a 15-year-old movie, and that this isn't necessarily a new topic, I, I, I don't know. I, I would have thought that for how utterly helpless and debilitating this has to be for everybody that goes through or has someone else that goes through it has to feel that there would have been a much bigger fervor to try and figure out a better way of of handling this because it just seems like we're exactly where we were 15 years ago with this there is studies being done there's tests there's stuff i mean they've linked uh, alzheimer's onset to various issues um there's you know We've made point of trying to, you know, what the, I mean. From a medical I'm, standpoint or a, a, a physical medicine, sure. But I, I just, I don't think we have enough appreciation, uh, empathy, sensitivity, or a way of handling this in a way that doesn't feel ostracizing. I mean, I, there are more and more it, seemingly people that are going through either uh, fairly advanced stages of dementia or Alzheimer's because we have people living longer. And the more people we have and the more people that are going through these situations, not them personally, because I don't know how much it – it's really difficult for me to put the shoe, myself in, in the shoes of somebody that is suffering from it. But I can definitely put it on the other side of finding – uh, people that uh, have to watch people that they know go through it. This is becoming a bigger problem because there are more people going through this. There should be a better way. Yeah, you know, and it's not like there have been, um, you know, a lack of uh, famous, influential people who have gone through it. Ronald Reagan had Alzheimer's. To some extent, it's one of these situations, I think, where people just try to avoid it. They don't want to think about it. Um, to me, who's somebody who's made their le living off their uh, brain and um, prides themselves on that, the idea of becoming an Alzheimer's a victim is so frightening to me that it's hard for me to express the level of that fear i hate to end it on such a dour note but uh i think that's a good place to probably uh put it out so um with that uh 
let's just uh, finish up. Rona, why did you think of uh, being on the show for the first time? I really enjoyed it, and I um, enjoyed talking about the movie and also just uh, watching the knowledge of you and your dad on movies and how you analyze them. I think that's really great, and um, yeah, I appreciate being on the show. And for anybody in the audience um, who would like to know more about you or um, read any of your books, uh, find your podcast, how would they do so? You can find me on LinkedIn, Aruna Krishnan. And uh, you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Lead That Thing, which is the name of my podcast. And my LinkedIn page of my podcast is Lead That Thing. Perfect. Uh, I also would like to give a shout out. You and I are both uh, founding members of Podcast Town, so you can find us both over there on the podcast or community.podcasttown.net. I really haven't found a better group of people who are more genuine and caring and generous uh, than some of the people over there. So uh, I'm just glad that uh, we found great people like yourself to connect to. So um, same here. Enjoyed uh, enjoyed having you on the show, Aruna. Thanks, Dana. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Next week, we will be discussing either one of two movies. If we have our guest come through, who is not confirmed yet, uh, we'll be talking about Alien. Or uh, we, Dana and I will be doing a solo episode on Bridge on the River Kwai, our first uh, David Lean movie that just came on Prime. So if you want to watch that one ahead of time, because that might be coming up in the next few weeks, uh, I would suggest doing so. Again, that's on Amazon Prime. Um, that's uh, one you'll be probably whistling the tune for afterwards. So stick around on this feed for that one. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with the show, uh, greatest all-time movie podcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. Greatest all-time movie podcast at gmail.com. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM. Thanks and have a great week, everyone. 